0: I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the Beachy Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, joining me is Yuri Gneesi. He is a professor of economics and strategy at the Rady School of Management, the University of California in San Diego. Yuri focuses on behavioral economics, and that's what we're going to be talking about today because he's just produced a very comprehensive new book on the subject called Mixed Signals How Incentives Really Work which came out from Yale University Press in March of 2023. So this is not Yuri's first book on behavioral economics, but I think it it is very thorough at a managerial level on questions like how to create smart incentives, how incentives can conflict, the signals that are given off by incentives, the monetary, social, and cultural aspects of signaling. And that's what we're going to get into today in our limited time. Congratulations on the book, Yuri, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So let's deal with language first of all, Yuri. The title of your book mentions the word signals, and, and, and the first part of your book is about signals. But the bulk of the book is about incentives. Could you explain what you mean by those two terms, please? Right. So
1: incentives, I think that the main idea of the book is that incentives send signal. You don't just give people incentives. When you give incentives, you also tell them what you care about or what's important for you, what they should care about. And those are the signals. And it's really important in order to get your incentives to work. It's really important that you'll manage the signal such that they will send the right message. That's what I'm trying to do in the book.
0: And the main idea of your book, is it how to practically construct effective incentives? Or would you you frame the book in a different way?
1: I think that's a great uh, framing. And like I said, in order to make your incentive work, you need to understand the message that you're sending with them. Right. Once you understand this, your incentives are going to be more productive.
0: So presumably the book has a value because this is not obvious. We, we, we misunderstand incentives and misapply them. At a high level, what is the most common pattern by which businesses misinterpret or misapply incentives?
1: So I give a few examples. I give quite a few examples of that. But think about a company that tells its employee that they should care about quality. Quality is everything, you know, customer service, safety, whatever you define quality, but then give them incentives based on quantity to produce more. Very many companies are doing this. The reason is that quantity is usually much easier to measure. I can just count, and quality is often subjective. But you should understand that if you ask people to pay attention to quality, but you incentivize them based on quantity, they're not going to care about quality because. It's not just the money that they get from producing more. It's also the message that they really think, what they really think that you care about. Same is true about long versus short run. So you can tell your CEO that you care about the long run, but if you incentivize her based on quarterly earnings, she's not going to care about the long run and, and so on. I have many examples of that, of what I call mixed signals.
0: Okay. So this seems to be a very perennial sort of theme. I mean, presumably this has been an issue in business for hundreds of years. But I'm wondering, is there any any reason for releasing this book right now? Is there a topical element to this subject?
1: The reason I'm interested in incentive is that it's everywhere and it was always there. You can think about, uh, you know, the Bible as you can analyze it from an incentive perspective. Everything we do is based on incentives. And that's, that's why I care about it. It's not that now it's more important than before. It's just always important. And understanding this angle of incentives could really
0: improve them. So I was reading the book and I was thinking to myself, what, what is the job that's being done here, sort of managerially? If this is a tool, what can we use this tool for? And it, it seemed to me that you were talking about understanding problems through the lens of incentives, reframing stories with incentives, fixing bad outcomes. That was my take. But, what, but what's your take on the managerial job to be done with this science of incentives?
1: So the first step is to understand that incentives work. I very often work with companies and they tell me, oh, we tried incentives and it didn't work. And my example is you went to a bad Japanese restaurant and your conclusion is that Japanese food is bad. No, you just, you were not lucky. You went to a bad restaurant. Same is true about incentives. The fact that what you designed didn't work doesn't mean that incentives don't work. It means that the way you did it didn't work. And it's not, you know, if if the discussion over here was about physics, most people would believe what I'm saying because you know, they don't understand the language. With incentives, everyone understands it because we all use it and we all think about it. But turns out that there is some advantage for thinking about it in an organized way and in a more systematic way.
0: So your book doesn't only deal with conflict, but I think the title and a major part of the book is conflicts between different incentives or conflicts between goals and incentives. What are the ways in which we can, we can see this conflict I think you mentioned two already. You you talked about short and long term, for example, and quality and quantity. But are there other ways in which it's very common for incentives to contradict themselves?
1: Uh, You can think about uh, companies that try to encourage creativity, but then they punish you if you fail. Well, the more creative people are more likely to fail because you basically increase the variance. You're more likely to achieve something great, and you're also more likely to fail. If you punish failure, people are not going to be creative, right? So that's another thing. And think about teamwork versus individual incentives. You can tell people that you really want them to work in teams and cooperate, but then if you incentivize them based on individual incentives, they're not going to do that, right? If you need to mentor someone new at work, which is extremely important for the organization, why would they do it if I'm not going to be incentivized for this? I'm going to lose from the incentives that are related to something else.
0: So I guess, you know, part of that message about avoiding conflict is is obvious, although it may not be obvious if we take for granted or or sort of incentives are unstated. But I guess there's a more subtle question I struggled with when I was reading the book, which is sometimes we actually do want a little bit of both. For example, we do want individual performance, but we also want team collaboration. So I wondered about the question of balance. When you wish to balance apparently conflicting incentives, how do we think about or go about getting the right balance?
1: So that's, of course, the, the holy grail. That's what you need to do, right? How do you balance between the two? So think about the quantity versus quality. You want people to do quality job, but you also want them to work hard. Think about uh, two taxi drivers. One is paid per hour, and the other one is paid per passenger that they pick. Now, the one that will be paid per hour will be more polite, drive more safely, everything will be good, but that person, that driver will not think strategically about where to be, when to be, Right. The other driver that is paid per passenger will be much more strategic and creative in thinking about how to, to earn more money, but will be less less safe, less polite, maybe. If you think about rideshare companies, they were able to solve this. So the Uber driver that you take is paid per passenger, which could make that driver much more aggressive and less polite. But on top of that, the rideshare companies were smart enough to add a layer of another incentive, which is the ratings. So when you leave the car, if the driver was not polite to you, drive in an unsafe way, you'll give the driver one star, and that's going to affect their earning later. So they were able to add another dimension of incentives that didn't cost them anything and achieve both drivers that think strategically and
0: care. Just to play devil's advocate on that one, Yuri, you, you talk about avoiding conflict, but it seems to me that those two parts of the incentive for a rideshare company, you know, are somewhat conflicting. So is there any theory about how to create that balance, or does one is it an issue of empirical experimentation? Well, so first of all, you can
1: see, I don't know about your experience, my experience with rideshare drivers is almost always better than with taxi drivers. Right? So they were able to get them to, to work uh, like they should. You asked me, what do you need to do with, uh, with incentives? I'll get to experimentation in a second. But you said that most of your listeners are in the C-suite. A person that is really missing in the C-suite is what I call a common sense officer. Right. Someone that will look at incentive and say, no, that's a bad idea. People are going to be upset by that. People are going to game it this way. Someone that will really think in a, in a common sense. And then comes the second part that you talked about, which is the experimentation. Think about A B testing. No company will, will release a product without some A B testing. Right. Even, you know, the, the color of the background, whatever it is. And you should do the same with incentives. First of all, in order to see whether you offended someone that your common sense check didn't work. And second, people are really creative with gaming incentives. And you can learn from this. So before you introduce it, use some kind of A-B testing, modify it, and then keep testing it. Because like I said, people are very, very creative with gaming the system. So try to do a dynamic testing every period to see whether it's still working.
0: Okay. So let's double click on innovation, because that's a topic of interest to, I think, all of our listeners. So there is this old chestnut of a question of whether it's better to reward success, punish failure, reward failure, punish inaction. Is there a single answer to this question about how to incentivize an environment of, of innovation? Or at least are there clearly wrong answers to that question?
1: Well, the wrong answer is to just punish failure. Well, in some cases, if you're a physician, I don't want you to be creative, right? So there are fields in which I don't want you to be creative. But in most, most professions, we do want people to be creative. A mistake is clearly to punish failure in this case. The right thing to do in all of that success and failure is to have a debrief after, after you introduce some new product, new action, whatever it is. First of all, try to understand what happened. Right? Second, try to understand why did it happen. So if it failed, you know, why did it fail? If it failed because I didn't get up in the morning and I was not doing my job, then fire me. But if it happened because I had some assumptions about the way people behave, which turned out to be wrong, then try to learn from it, and that's the last part. How do you, how can you do it better in the future? And that's true, by the way, for success and failure. What happened? Why did it happen? How can you do better in the future? And very often, you know, I run experiments for a living. For a living, and very often I start with the hypothesis it doesn't work, and I learn more from the fact that it didn't work than if it would have worked, right? But if if you would just punish me when it didn't work, you wouldn't learn from it. So make sure that you do this debrief. It's very important to date when you're successful. If you ask me, you know, when I go to consult with companies, the companies that need consulting, more consulting, actually the successful companies, because if the company is not doing well, they're already trying to do their best in order to improve. Companies that are doing well, they think, well, you know, everything is good and they miss a lot of opportunities because of that.
0: Yes, I I think I come across that pattern a lot in consulting, actually. You know, I, I, I put it this way. I say that success is usually more mysterious than failure. Failure is often a single factor. And, you know, stopping doing something or addressing a single variable is often or sometimes sufficient. Success requires a lot of things to go right. So I think, you know, one operational challenge is clearly if you're successful, you've done a lot of things, but which of those things are of the essence? Do you have a way of, of thinking about that? Because, for example, if you look at all of the incentives and all of the signals that you're giving off, you know, in relation to an innovation system, you know, which ones are of are of the essence? Is that just an issue of Serial experimentation, or how do you get to the heart of the matter?
1: Well, one really important factor with this is luck, because if you're successful, you're not going to say, I was lucky. So, if you were working in Zoom, for example, in 2020, and suddenly COVID happened, you were basically lucky, right? Because you were at the right time and the right place. And that's very hard for people to admit. You know, if I'm the CEO and my company suddenly succeed, I'm not going to say, oh, I just got lucky, right? I'm going to have some kind of misattribution about my action. And the debrief that I talked about before is really important in order to disentangle what was luck, what was actually something good that we can learn for for the future.
0: Right. Your book deals a lot with cognitive biases, you know, things like anchoring effects and so on you talk about. And I guess at a superficial read, one might conclude that if you know about these biases, you can probably design better incentives. But when I thought about that some more, it, it seemed to me that there are many, many biases. So, you know, which one is relevant in this case? And often they conflict, and often we'd want them to conflict. We have balancing objectives, not just a single maximization objective. So, I'm wondering how theoretically prescriptive can we be just knowing biases? Or in practice, does it more come back to experimentation? Or put another way, I'm wondering whether there's a a thinking path which cuts across all of these biases and, and enables you to start from a broad understanding of something to, to honing in on the key factors?
1: Well, so much of it comes from experimentation, like you said, right? And experience of other people that already ran the experiments, right? That's how we learn, right? We learn from ours and from other people's experience with this. And like I said, in many cases, there are conflicting, you call it biases, you can call it in other ways, but there are conflicting motives. And it's very hard to sit in your office in front of your computer and, and know which one is going to work. That's where experimentation is so important. But Fortunately, other people already conducted lots of experiments, so there is a lot of knowledge out there that you can use uh, to do this. Come up with the best plan, test it, go back to your computer and analyze it and see what you need to modify and so on.
0: Right. So would it be fair to say that you're talking more about a language of incentives, a way of thinking about incentives, a methodology for empirically testing incentives than giving simple recipes that are universally applicable?
1: I would say that it's more about thinking about how to apply incentives and what do incentives do. Right? So it's really about understanding the concept of incentives. What does it do? By the way, it's definitely not just money. Incentives could be social status. It could, be, could it be many, many things that you have. And understanding how they work, that's my goal, right? To try and understand it. I believe that once you understand how they work, you can really design better incentives. And I give lots of examples
0: about this. Your school may be, may be an exception, but I guess. In general, we we don't teach incentives as a subject or behavioral economics as a subject in a in a typical MBA course. So I'm wondering, you know, if we take the typical MBA skill set, a, a typical sort of language and logic for understanding business, is there almost something systematically blind or mistaken about that that sets us up to create conflicting incentives? Where, where do you see the holes in the managerial toolkit relative to incentives?
1: It's actually even worse than what you're saying, because the schools that do teach it teach either a class taught by an economist, and then you learn math, basically, with the assumption that people hate going to work and go there just because they need to to make money, or from a psychologist that says, oh, people don't care about the money, they just care about fulfillment and all all the important psychological stuff, right? And very few places actually teach what I'm trying to do, which is, how can we use the money to increase the, the satisfaction, the happiness of, of employees at work, right? So if I signal to you that I don't care about you with my incentives, it's going to be really bad for the psychology part of it. But if I can signal to you, look, I really appreciate what you did. It's really great. That's going to make you happier about what you do. So it's not just that business schools don't teach enough of incentives. When they do, they teach it either one strawman or the other strawman because of the Training that either an economist or an organizational psychology uh, comes from, and what I'm trying to do is to to make these two work together, which I think is the key.
0: Your book, I think, is a very universal in scope. You know, I think you show that you can you can look at most problems through the lens of incentives. And so, for example, you know, you can think about how incentives shape narratives, how incentives shape collective behaviors. You can get at most business phenomena through the lens of incentives, and I think that makes it powerful. But Perhaps it also makes it a little dangerous. Have you seen situations where this lens of incentives is, is the wrong primary lens for looking at a problem or where, or where this sort of language or methodology is abused or used in superficial ways? You know, so, so in other words, if one of our listeners says, you know, yes, I buy this, I want, to, I want to apply this, what are the most common mistakes in practice in the application?
1: One major mistake is just focusing on incentives as if it's the only thing that you should care about. Let me give you an example. Imagine that, think about the single parent with two kids is fired from his job and loses the health insurance for the kids. Imagine that you live in a world like this. That's a very good incentive for him to go out and look for a job, right? Not to stay unemployed. Compare this to a scenario in which this person is paid unemployment benefits and keeps the health insurance for the kids. That's a bad incentive. Right? because now you will not be that eager to go and look for a job. I think that the second scenario is much better than the first, despite of the fact that it's a bad incentive. Right? So one very important mistake is to think, oh, incentives, we need to maximize the, the performance based on incentives. No, incentives is a good tool to understand the world, and it's a good tool to influence people. But it has its limit. It's not the only consideration that we should have. Right. So in many cases, I can make more money, but by making more money, I can do something bad. I will not go and work for some companies, for example, right?
0: Right. So, so, so in other words, incentives don't trump higher goals. Exactly. exactly. It's a tool,
1: right? So statistics is a tool. Statistics is not good or bad in itself. It's what you do with it. And the same is true about incentives. And I think that that's one really important thing to remember when you think about incentives. Well, maybe I can increase my profits by using this incentive. Do I want to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not a trivial question.
0: Let's talk about another big subject, maybe the most important topic in business, which is change. So our research indicates that 75% of corporate change efforts fail. And there seem to be many reasons why they can fail. If you say, do they fail because you know they had goals that were too ambitious? Yes, sometimes. Goals that were not ambitious enough? Yes, sometimes. Did they fail because the IT was bad? There's you know, no simple symptomology of, of failure. I'm wondering, You know, in these chapters that you have in the book on behavior change, what you have to say about the role of incentives in driving effective collective change.
1: Right. So uh, you can think about, you mentioned uh, what I talk about in behavior change. I talk about habits, right? How do you create habits? So uh, I don't know about you, but uh, many people want to exercise. And many people will share the experience that they had periods in their life in which they just enjoyed exercising. They were happy to go to the gym. Everything was great. And then they have periods in their life in which they can't get themselves off the sofa and Netflix, right? Why does this happen? One of the things that we think is that it's because once you are in the routine of exercising, you know where to park. It's in your schedule. You know what to do at the gym. Everything is good. So you can use incentives in order to jumpstart this, if you want, to, to remove some barriers that you have, reduce the friction, whatever you want to say. So pay people to go to the gym for a month. And then what we found in our experiments is that after that, after you stop paying, them, they're much more likely to go to the gym than people that you didn't. Right? So once we get into this inertia, we can get you to do things. Right? So that's one way of of achieving change that incentives could be
0: useful. Interesting.
1: I cannot get you to do, to change, to go to the gym after I remove the incentives if you hate it. Right? So the trick is to find for you, I cannot tell you what you're going to enjoy doing in the gym. Maybe it's the elliptical, maybe it's the treadmill, maybe it's something else. You need to find what you're going to like. I can just send you over there, give you incentives to go there and find what is it that actually works for
0: you. So let's, let's take on the, the biggest change problem we face, which is climate change. I think much talked about. I think every company now has its net zero objectives, its ESG goals and metrics. Yet the, the emissions curve is basically racing ahead. You can see no visible inflection. So here's a great example of a of a collective problem we are not making much progress against. I'm sure there are all sorts of factors here, but from an incentives perspective, if you were a, you know, a politician with a lot of power, how would you transform the incentives side of this problem?
1: So first of all, I would make sure that it's not a political issue because they, you know, the climate is changing it doesn't affect you because you are Republican and me because I'm Democrat or the other way around differently, right? And our kids are going to suffer the same. If anything, the people with less money are going to suffer more than people with more money. And that's the first thing that needs to be done to, to try and understand that that's not a political issue. right? That's uh, You mentioned there's a politician. What I would do, I would try to make sure that it's not a political issue. Then I would try to fight lobbies. Let me give you one example. So one of the worst things that happened is the recycling of plastic bottles. So before I got familiar with this, I thought that there's no harm in me drinking water from a plastic bottle and putting it in the recycled bin because then everything is good. Turns out that it reduces the problem by something like 20%. It's still, you know, many of these bottles end up in the landfill, and even if they end up in the recycling, it reduces the damage, but not by much. So it gives people who really care about the environment a kind of wrong license to use. right? So that's, that's the kind of thing, and that happened from lobbies of companies like Coca-Cola that introduced this recycling. Right. The world would have been better, it's a surprising statement, but I really believe that the world would have been better if we were not able to recycle these bottles, because Many people would understand that That's that's going to be there for thousands of years.
0: And just help me spelling out the obvious on that one. So the link to incentives is it the the self signalling of the apparently virtuous behavior of recycling, which is not actually so virtuous. And the intervention is to correct the story, to correct the signaling by supplying facts. Is that the idea?
1: Right, right, right. So I, I think about myself as someone who cares about climate change and someone who cares about the environment. I try to avoid doing bad things. So by recycling, I basically gave myself what you call the self-signaling, and that's what I talk about in the book. That I'm an okay. What I'm doing is okay. I'm a good person. Now that I know it, I can't do it anymore, right? So that's just giving people this kind of information about the damage that drinking from plastic bottles. That that's already a, a good step in the direction of you know. You have people who wouldn't care, right? They don't care about recycling. They don't care about plastic. But I do care. I try not to use this kind of plastic bottles, right? And that that should be the kind of steps that can help with this.
0: So your book is very comprehensive. We, we're only scratching the surface here today, but unfortunately our time is limited. Let me wrap up with a more personal question, which is, do you use this thinking in your everyday life? Could you, could you give me an example of, of where you apply your own thinking to your, to your working or your personal life?
1: Right. So that's that's how I got to study incentives. I think about this uh, since I was a kid. Right. That's the way I think about the world. Why do you do what you want? And the the nice thing is that in many cases, you don't even know yourself why you're doing it. And I try to understand why I'm doing different things. And by understanding this, I think that I avoid doing some things. Right. Because I understand that I'm doing it for the wrong reasons and I'm trying to do other things. Right. So to, to think about the world through the perspective of why am I doing what I'm doing is really interesting. You'll be surprised because very often you think that you're doing it for some reason. You're doing it for a different reason. And so if you ask me about one fun advice is to think about yourself, the incentives that made you do what you do and try to shape your life based on that.
0: It's a huge subject, and I'm assuming that your research continues. What's the next unconquered uh, frontier, the next research topic in, in behavioral economics that you'll be looking at?
1: So one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is fake news, lies, and so think about politicians. It used to be, politicians had to lie always, right? It's not new. But now it's, it's all over the place, and it seems like you don't get punished for it, right? And that's something that I find fascinating. So how come, you know, 20 years ago, if a politician would just, if a president, you know, Bush the first said, read my lips, and then he, he changed his behavior and everyone punished him for this, right? And today, it seems like there is no punishment for that. I'm trying to understand why it's like that. It's of course, there's not just one factor, but I think that trying to understand why are we much more tolerant to fake news and how can we reduce it maybe if we understand it? That's that's a worthwhile topic for
0: research. So fascinating, uh, Yuri. Thank you for joining me today and uh, congratulations again on the new book. Thank you, I enjoyed it. So I've been discussing mixed signals, how incentives really work came out in March 2023 from Yale University Press by Yuri Ganesi. I think this lens of incentives, why do we do what we do? What signals do we give? Where do our signals conflict? I find it to be a very universally applicable framework. I think we can think about almost any organizational problem or any strategy problem through this lens, although Yuri himself says it's not the only lens that we should should apply to problem solving. I think it is a powerful lens, which is somewhat neglected, somewhat missing from the typical managerial toolkit. If you liked this conversation, please make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.